Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace, a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying hello once again from Manila. Last week, as you well know, I was in the Maldives. So very sorry for some of the problems with the audio. It's very difficult having a podcast near a beach, let me tell you, with more than a hundred women moving around. That conference that we had was for the members of the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership. And it had been three years since our last meeting. So everybody was so excited to be there to find out how we were doing, how we were managing with COVID from interesting areas like Palestine, Lebanon, Nigeria, Southern Thailand. And luckily, one of our friends was able to join us from Myanmar. And I spoke quite a bit with her. I'm not going to name her because this democracy advocates are part of the political resistance and there are threats uh, that have been made against her. She's in exile, and unfortunately, but she remains committed to restoring democracy in Myanmar, even as she and her colleagues continue to face all kinds of threats from the military junta, I really felt her pain. She had been away from her home, her family for a year now, and only relying on what she could get from emails from friends who remain in Myanmar. So after the conference, when I got back to Manila and had access to better internet, I started reading the news about what's going on in Myanmar. Because, you know, the last time I was in Myanmar, I had a wonderful time. I was able to meet with my colleagues who were with the Muslim communities. They took me shopping and they showed me where to get beautiful handwoven textiles and herbal remedies for aches and pains. Let me tell you, I had such a wonderful time. But that was more than 10 years ago. And reading the news... Oh my goodness, I cannot picture the same community that I had visited over 10 years ago. Let me share with you some of the 
news that I had read just this over the past 24 hours. One was on women. There was a nice article that talked about women who had played their part and added their own twist to their messaging. And the news says that from young women wearing wedding dresses, would you believe, in a number of rallies to bringing paper flowers, to offering insult. <laughs> and you know what the insult was? Stringing women's underwear across streets to stop the male Myanmar security forces. This news article says that many say the role of Myanmar's women in the anti-coup movement should really be celebrated. And they talked about certain individual women. In one news, for instance, it mentions that last year, when the military forces opened fire to disperse a peaceful anti-coup demonstration for democracy, the first fallen hero in what they call the Spring Revolution was a woman named Mia Twet Twet Kaling from Nai Pie Dao. And she was shot in the head on February 9, 2021. Many believed that she had actually been targeted because she was wearing a red t-shirt, a symbolic color of Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party. So she lay in a coma for 10 days before being taken off life support. Then there was this article about Angel or Kyal Sin, a 19-year-old woman who was killed on March 3, 2021. And according to the news, it looks like she was also deliberately targeted by the Myanmar security force and shot in the head by a sniper. And why? She had a t-shirt inscribed with, everything will be okay. How is everything will be okay a sign of defiance? But it did become. I cannot recognize the same country that I had visited 10 years ago. And more disturbing news, Myanmar's junta, just said that it will execute a former lawmaker from Aung San Suu Kyi's party and a prominent democracy activist, both of whom were convicted of ha, terrorism in the country's first judicial execution since 1990. Can you just imagine that? But there's something terrible development that I think the junta should really be worried about. According to the news, assassinations have become a weapon of choice for the guerrilla groups in Myanmar. So they're now going to what they think are collaborators' uh, offices, walking up to the people in charge and shooting them because they have become part of the oppression of the people. Another news that should be very troubling for the junta, it seems that thousands of soldiers are leaving behind the Myanmar military service. There's a news about a young Myanmar soldier who, according to the news, always believed that reform was possible and that the military would one day be truly worthy of respect. But this young man realized that everything changed after the coup when the country's generals 
moved away from the right direction and now towards political control. Oh my God. And watching as the newly installed regime rounded up Myanmar's elected leaders and ruthlessly crushed protests, the news says that this young soldier knew there was no reason to believe it would ever change. So he left, together with thousands of others. Makes me wonder, is there a way back? Is there a way to restoring democracy? Is there a way to peace? And I'm so glad that we have been joined today by a very popular peace advocate, popular in the Philippines, in Cambodia, in Myanmar, Emma Leslie. She's an Australian, now Australian-Cambodian, excuse me, the founder-director of the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies based in Cambodia. She supports, the center supports peace processes and conflict transformation in Asia. Emma developed the MA and PhD programs in Applied Conflict Transformation Studies and launched the Cambodia Peace Museum. I got to know Emma because for a decade, she actually worked with us in the Philippines. And she served the Philippine government Moro Islamic Liberation Front Peace Talks as a member of the international contact group. Emma has been very active in Myanmar issues for 25 years now. And would you believe she has made several peace missions to North Korea? Now, that's an interesting story to tell. But Emma has focused more of her attention, really, in Southeast Asia. She's even on the International Advisory Board of the um, Universidade Nacional Timor. Lorosa. This is Portuguese, so excuse my, my pronunciation. It's a peace center. So, Emma, you were one of the 1,000 women nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2005, filed by the uh, KC as a hero of dialogue. But you know, Emma, I was trying to go into your recent podcast, Peace Builder Who Pack a Punch, but I couldn't. So, welcome. Dr. Emma Leslie. Not launched yet. Oh, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're way ahead of me, Amina. We, we're still in the oh, drafting phase. I wonder I couldn't so. get in. <laughs> oh, it's not launched yet. <laughs> Welcome, Emma. Thank you, Amina. So tell me, do you have optimism for Myanmar? Is there a way forward? Well, thank you for your um, kind introduction and I think the part that's always missing in my bio is that I'm now the proud grandmother of two small grandchildren. And of course, so grandmothers always have to be optimistic. So if the question is, are we optimistic? I think it's partly our job as peace builders, but it's also our job as grandmothers. So for me, Emma, I think what's, I mean, what you've described is 100% accurate, but also a symptom of what's really a 70-year conflict and as you've alluded to a really deeply hierarchical patriarchal conflict a militaristic one and what's extraordinary about the young people that have first as you described taken up the protest against the coup d'etat of february 2021 but then continued into now what is actually a full-fledged 
armed revolution. Those young people are so interesting and I think all of us as peace builders really need to be listening to them very deeply because they have a few fundamentals about the way this conflict is going to go. And firstly, they're saying they're not interested in all of the tools and frameworks and policies that we've all sort of been propagating for these last 20, 30 years of our lives as peace builders. They're not interested in dialogue. They're not interested in peace talks. They don't believe that peace agreements work. They're definitely not interested in ceasefires. So actually they have a kind of fatigue of the last 10, 15 years of peace negotiations in Myanmar. And so they don't see that as the exit strategy out of this. They're not interested in sitting down with the military ever and talking this through and trying to find a solution. So that's the first interesting aspect. The second is that they really pushed the international community and in particular ASEAN and the United Nations to come in and help. And they called for peacekeepers, they called for interventions, they called for anything in the early days that could mitigate or stop this military from going as far as it has in terms of human rights violations, now a humanitarian crisis across large parts of the north um, east of the country. And of course, the way that we are structured now as an international community, it's very difficult to be able to do anything like that. So in the absence of that kind of response, young people said, well, we have to protect our communities. We've got no other way to be safe, to keep elderly people safe, children, whatever, whatever. So they organised into people's defence forces. And these have become quite controversial because some of them come under a chain of command, others of them act autonomously. But of course, it's created a proliferation of weapons again across Myanmar, different pockets of different kinds of dynamics. And of course, what we also know is in that situation, some groups, not all, but some are less altruistic and become mechanisms of revenge and criminality. But fundamentally, those young people are saying, if the international community is not going to be able to help us, we're going to have to find ways to do this for ourselves. And now at this stage of the conflict, two interesting dynamics. One is those forces are organising themselves into a, into a Burma People's Liberation Army, which for them is about replacing the current army. And I don't think seeing something like that um, in Asia really ever is a sort of growing of a national army from the ground up. But the second is they're saying, let's stop using this language, return to or restore. What we're doing now is building new, is that we've had these ethnic conflicts. We've been talking about federalism and power sharing and so on for so many decades. Now we're going to make that happen. And it may not look like what you all expect. It might not be in, you know, years of negotiations and coming out of agreement and then changing constitutions and so on. It may be that some of our states secede and become independent, perhaps more like Timor-Leste style. Some of them talk about actually just holding the power and take making autonomous zones that then are in some kind of confederation. So they're really exploring what I would think is a 21st century way forward rather than thinking they have to get rid of the military and go back to what they had because what they think they had didn't serve them well. So I think it's really interesting dynamic and one that 
in our region we need to be paying attention to because I think there are many festering conflicts that have similar dynamics that might be inspired by this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And unseen. I'm both really petrified and encouraged. Right what you're saying, petrified, because I wonder what's happening in the areas of the communities. Are they part of this movement or are they going to be even more outside, especially if you talk about this integration and courage because the coming together of youth-led organizations with community organizations, that you're right, that is unprecedented. And, and a liberation army from the community level up, so how do you reach them, Emma? I mean, if you were, you know, ASEAN uh, trying to do peace building, how would you reach such a diverse group trying to come together? I think um, there are two questions there. How do we reach them? One is, and one of the really interesting elements of this last year has been the fact that internet and connectivity is so powerful now that even the attempts by the military to shut that down through cutting electricity or blocking the internet have failed, largely because there are so many alternative ways of being able to connect together. And so actually you've seen um, both the people's movements, the revolution, Generation Z, the civil disobedience, they meet um, day in and day out online, connecting across the country, connecting to people in the diaspora, connecting to those that have fled the conflict, so very often you see people deep in the jungle, in an IDP area, all interconnected, having conversations about the direction and where things go. So I think that's been extraordinarily powerful and something that's been underestimated in their ability to organise. Even the group that has formed what is called a national unity government, their cabinet, their ministers, their broader um, connections are all interconnecting as I understand it, twice a week in cabinet meetings that are online and you don't know where anybody is. So once upon a time, it would be that government might be considered in exile or it might be considered shadow or opposition. Now they behave as if they are the government in the country, working to Myanmar time, behaving as if they are the government. And so internet has created a really different dynamic in the way that people can orient in this particular situation. But then you raised ASEAN. <laughs> I think this, is, this has been really difficult because to ASEAN's credit, the world said, 
let's give this problem to to ASEAN to solve. And so the UN has backed them, Australia, China, Japan, everybody said yes. The most um, fundamental way to deal with this is to let ASEAN lead. And in their first um, meeting in Jakarta, they did an extraordinary job of setting some really significant benchmarks called consensus points around what they expected the Myanmar, the Tatmadaw, the SAC to be able to meet in order to be able to go forward. And I think it's been almost a rude shock to many ASEAN leaders that that consensus points has never been honoured, but that there's also been a deep lack of respect for that process by the Myanmar military. And so in a way, we're learning actually within ASEAN that there are some things that are just so unacceptable to other countries in the region and so shocking that this can't be happening within our ASEAN family. So in a way, it's mobilised a lot of energy. A lot of foreign ministers have been really deeply involved on a day-to-day basis, um, having conversations to people on the ground thanks to, to internet. But also the challenge of trying to work out, well, and so what can we do in this situation? And the recognition that maybe other governments can't solve problems of government. And maybe this notion we have of envoys that fly in and like mediate people is really not going to be able to change a dynamic like this into the future. Um, I think it's also showing the geopolitical dimensions of our region in terms of Russia initially backed the military. Of course, China is watching the situation very closely and actually are, as we can understand, connected to all the groups in this story. So have a very unique approach of really keeping relationships with everybody and monitoring who's moving and how how they might want to partner into the future. And then, of course, the United States also, who recently received this national unity government in Washington. So you know, the awareness that you have to have now as a peace builder takes you to, you might be working on Myanmar, but you'd be thinking in Washington and Beijing and equally Bangladesh, because as you alluded to, there is also this whole Rakhine Rohingya issue, which remains with a million Rohingyas still left in Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh, and Bangladesh doing an extraordinary job of hosting them and and still keeping them safe and looking after them. And then the rise of an army in Arakan, which is now saying they're ready to return Rohingya. So once again, like how do we, you know, how do we think about that is if the international community ordinarily would partner with the government to return people, how do you partner with an armed group who is talking about benchmarks and security and safety of people and how do we build trust between them and so on and so forth? So there's a myriad of issues for us as a region to be trying to get our heads around. And as you well know, foreign ministers don't tend to have the time for this amount of detail. Absolutely not. So I don't think it's an easy task. It's not an easy task. But you're right. You know, it's it's really amazing that ASEAN, I mean, the action that they took uh, on Myanmar is really radical. I mean, ASEAN, right? I mean, this, this is a, a collective of leaders who go slow by slow. The approach is consensus. So if there's one government, one leader that says no way, then ASEAN doesn't move forward. But in the case of uh, Myanmar, they did. And that is so remarkable. 
but I, I still wonder, uh, in spite of that, how the rest of the ASEAN bureaucracy is moving really towards pushing the junta, because I don't really see that happening, apart from the very political and you know external opposition to the junta and still saying that they are not the legitimate government. Apart from that, I still have to see the push coming from ASEAN and the member state leaders to get the junta to the negotiating table. Well, and I think, well, recently a Korean friend, when we've been talking about the Korean peninsula. Um, said, not North Korean. No, no, South Korean. <laughs> he said, you have to remember that ASEAN is is a peace process in itself. And that kind of helped me actually is that we often treat ASEAN as if it is an institution. And of course it has a secretariat in Jakarta and so on, but it's not technically a sort of um, organization that has its own army that can sort of go in and, you know, big stick and, and it doesn't tend to do sanctions. And I'm not convinced that any of these things really work either. So it really has its soft power of diplomacy to be able to try and shift things. But a military like this doesn't care. It really doesn't care. They have never kowtowed to anybody. Even the Chinese will tell you that. So you are dealing with an entity that believes its roots go back to Burman kings, but also something, Amina, that we don't talk enough about, and I think this is true of many conflicts, is that the wealth in Myanmar is exponential. It's huge amounts of jade. The jade industry is worth $66 billion a year. That's money beyond any of us can comprehend. The gas and oil pipelines that bring Saudi oil through to China are worth $25 billion a year. So this money that this military has been able to tap um, not only supports it, but who wants to give that up? They're not going to give that up for some ASEAN envoy or, you know, to please other people. This is really a big business um, entity for them. So... So I think that's where also we have to look at not just sanctions, but how do you um, start to strategically manage those particular resources? How does the global economic system weather those kinds of storms we saw in Ukraine recently, how the oil prices have all shot up everywhere, even though that's about Ukraine? So, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a much more complex. And just to throw in the mix, of course, it, massive criminal networks now, drug trafficking, human trafficking, arms trade, of course, like the, the extended yeah, yeah, really. And mafia bosses, criminal networks, they extend into Cambodia to Thai border to the Bangladesh, Northeast India side. I mean, it's a really big problem for everybody. So, yes, core is the Myanmar people and the suffering they're going through, but equally everybody else is destabilised by this situation as well. So we really have to pay attention and, and lean in, I think. And speaking of Cambodia, your centre is, is based in Cambodia and they now chair ASEAN. Are you optimistic that the Cambodian leadership might be able to leverage whatever influence it has and push the junta a little bit forward on uh, the track for peace? So the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies is actually even a registered Cambodian NGO by design because, as you know, the Cambodian people have been through so much in their history, um, U.S. bombing, 
then genocide, then civil war, then a peace process, then 100,000 UN peacekeepers arriving to manage the country. Like there's almost no experience that Cambodians haven't been through um, to come to where they are now. And where are they now? I mean, they're in a certain situation where everybody's thankful for stability, but also a generation. In fact, 70% of Cambodia's population is under the age of 30 who didn't experience all that. So have a lot of questions about where we're going in the future. The, the leadership of the country and, of course, those that are carrying the chairmanship and now the Myanmar envoy and so on, really thought that they could bring peace to Myanmar using a lot of the tools and skills that they had learned by these last 25 years of building peace in Cambodia. And I think it's been a big shock to everybody that Ming Online and the Tatmadaw didn't sort of open arms, embrace that and say, great, thanks for giving us your experience and your support and your wisdom. We'll take that on. Because in a way, the obvious olive branch or connection would be that Cambodia can reach out to Myanmar and has a special relationship and could have helped them. But so far, we've seen not a great response from Myanmar to Cambodia. I think that's been really hard on um, Prime Minister Hun Sen, of course, would like to share his peace legacy with the world. So I think he expected that that was going to be how it went, but it hasn't been like that at all. So quite confronting for Cambodia to see that yeah, they haven't had a special track, a unique relationship enough to be able to leverage the situation. But equally, maybe I think this whole situation's raised some questions for people in Cambodia too is, what are we supposed to learn in Cambodia from this Myanmar experience? How quickly a situation, as you describe, where we were all going there and running workshops and shopping and enjoying life in Myanmar, how it can collapse overnight? And so how fragile are any of our societies and are we paying attention to that? That kind of chaos and the kind of extraordinary amount of killing and human rights violations and bombing and escalation of war just hundreds of kilometres from each of us is really shocking and in your face and we can't afford to say that's over there. That can happen to any of us if we don't pay attention to our societies and build robust governance systems, check our constitutions to see where they're at and are they really serving people well, checking our leaders and so on and so forth. So I think it's, yeah, it's been an important lesson for Cambodia to be paying attention to itself as well. Wow, Emma. So the youth are radicalizing fast and organizing. Community organizations are becoming part of a liberation movement. What about the women? Over the past year and a half, they have been more than half of protest movements. Every time you have a demonstration, you see a lot of, of women there. What is the role that you think the Myanmar women are going to be playing? Are they also radicalizing at the same pace as, as the youth, or are they going to be a stabilizing force? Well, I mean, if I may, I wouldn't even call it radicalizing. I would say that they are asking really critical, sharp questions about the direction of what they've put up with in the past and where they want to take things. And I wanted to highlight two other women to your beautiful introduction about women in Myanmar, and that's um, Esther Zina Noor Bamvo and E Tinza Mong. Both of them were featured in Times in top 100 influential people. So not influential women, but influential 
and both of them being ethnic women, women that were first on the streets, but also women who are now the strategists behind a whole lot of what's happening. And I think women have, you know, we have this whole long discussion all the time about, you know, women more violent or nonviolent or, you know, they the carers and the nurturers and whatever. But these women have been saying in order to care for our society, we now have to have real strategy, real politic, compassionate politics, um, but politics that leverages and pushes and connects people together. And so it's a very um a very vertical movement that women are able to to nurture and mobilize together. So I would I've tried to move us away from conversations of are women more violent or nonviolent? No, women are stepping into leadership with deep compassion, grounded experience, but then real strategy and connectivity to one another. And I think that's really exciting to see these young women growing up and leading. Of course, they've had the model of Aung San Suu, Aung San Suu Kyi, both good and bad, the great stuff. Yes, yeah, both good and bad. Yeah, yeah, and then also the things that they also have a criticism about her. So, and bless her, I mean, she's also in prison and must be suffering terribly, so we also think of her. But still, these women are not holding on to that leadership and saying, we'll wait till Dorsu comes back. No, they're saying... We, we have to leave the country now, yeah, and we'll take this forward. And it's almost been unfair to think that one woman should have to lead the whole country. There's so many problems, so many challenges, so we had this tendency to put her on a pedestal and to expect the world from her because of who she is. They're saying no more of that. We need to be collective. We need to lead together. I find it really exciting and, and kind of feminist, really, and in my mind, feminism is when we share power and we give it to each other and we give credit to each other. That's a kind of feminist model of peace leadership. That's what I'm finding in these women is, is yes, the creativity in protest, but at an even deeper level, an ability to, to transcend that into how you model leadership, how, what is leadership to them. So I think we have to watch that. I think it's happening in Hong Kong too. I think we're seeing that um, in all kinds of movements in the region. And, and yeah, I'm excited as somebody who's getting older and older and his grandma is, you know, maybe our job now is to step back and let them shine and to be the support to them and to let these young women lead because it's exciting to hear how they speak, how uncompromising they are and how much energy they have and motivation to be taking this forward. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So. I'm glad you you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question to you. So how do we reach them? How do we support them coming from the outside? Because you know it's incredibly hard. I mean, the only women leaders that I could reach are all in exile. So how do we reach out and support those young women who are trying so hard to have an inclusive peace for, uh, for their country? Well, a couple of things. One is 
making sure that all of our own governments are have good analysis, are well aware of what's going on and are staying focused on it. Because as I said, it's not just a Myanmar issue, it's a regional issue. So the Philippines, Cambodia, we need to be making sure our foreign affairs teams are switched into the idea of to non-traditional ways of solving conflicts, that they need to crack this open, that we really need to be less politicised about this and more political, is how can we, you know, not be trapped into, oh, well, we don't interfere, but equally, oh, that's what they think, so we can't. So we need to really fuel our, our own countries to be able to respond to this. The second is the women in exile don't want to be called women in exile. They want to be still considered part of the country. So they're actually even engaging with them and supporting them because I can see that they've made really difficult decisions to leave and more often they've left made that decision in order to protect their own families inside the country so i think they need tons of support but the other is for example this national unity government has a, a minister for women's affairs susanna so who's a karen leading karen woman um, and her deputy is this woman e tinza Maung, who is um who was on time magazine and both of them are doing extraordinary work connecting women across the country. We can be inviting them to speak at things, but also they can use all the funding support they can get. But they're doing really interesting work, like they're challenging these people's defence forces to look at things like sexual violence in the midst of conflict. And they're holding their own revolutionary forces to account and saying, don't think just because you're struggling for democracy or change or whatever that you can't behave properly in the midst of conflict and we're monitoring that and we're checking you and so on. So I think just reaching out to those women and being supportive of all the things that they're doing. But something I learned about Myanmar over the years is this, probably like the Philippines, probably like Cambodia, is we also like to do things ourselves from outside, inside out. And so the solidarity aspect it's fundamental, but at the end of the day, Myanmar people will find the way to solve this, and I really believe that. I think they have extraordinary resilience and power and capacity to go forward. So, so I guess it's about us showing up and, and being aware and reading more and, and talking to one another and keeping the story alive. One of the possible support that could be given to the women in Myanmar and women all over ASEAN who find themselves in, in conflict situations is this recent ASEAN initiative to have a regional plan of action for women, peace, and security. And interestingly enough, Cambodia is chairing the ASEAN Committee on Women. And it seems you know, Cambodia is really keen on having this regional plan of action uh, ready by the next ASEAN leaders' meetings. So if you were to advise the ASEAN uh, Committee on Women, on what key recommendations should be in the regional plan of action, what would it be, Emma, so that we could help the Myanmar women and other women who are struggling to really build the peace? I'm really glad that you raised it because actually um, the Chair Excellency Kiang Sambada is um, somebody I admire in Cambodia who has really endless energy for this and has really championed um, women's issues in Cambodia, especially through the Ministry of Women's Affairs as the Secretary of State there. But actually we talked about this a lot is what, what needs to be done in the region. And a couple of things. One is 
I think we need to move away from, you know, doing lots of capacity building and training because I actually think we have tons of capable women. We just don't see them, you know, and I feel like it's almost neutralising is that we send women off for training all of the time Um, and so they're busy getting trained or talking about women's issues, but we don't get to do the stuff. And I think I've had the privilege of being part of Indonesian Foreign Minister Ratno's um, team of women mediators in Southeast Asian Women Mediators, which is really just a seminal idea. It's growing. But I think we can grow those kinds of things more and more. There's the network of women peacemakers. But I think what we should be doing in those settings is analysing conflict and looking at what we can do in terms of diplomacy and leveraging and making pressure. We don't need to be doing training and capacity building in order to learn how to do that. I think we know how to do it. I think we just need to prioritise conflict as our our conversation. The second thing is, um, and I've spoken a bit with Excellency Sambada and she's championing this a bit, is we have extraordinary number of women peacekeepers from our region who go to other parts of the world. And what we're learning is that they are only really operating at a very low level of the UN system. So they tend to be like admin people. I interviewed one Cambodian woman peacekeeper. (laughs) Her job was to, sorry, in Congo, her job was to give the traffic um, ticket to the UN personnel who were speeding. And she said it was so demeaning, you know, is that she's the one woman in the unit and her job was to chase everybody who was speeding. And she said she felt that she had so much more to offer the whole thing. So. We need to look at um, what we've traditionally called glass ceilings, but really do what Miriam Ferrer did in the the Philippine Peace Talks is see women, is to appoint each other, to promote one another into these jobs so that we actually change like the landscape. When you see, I saw yesterday um, Penny Wong from Australia and Indonesia with the ASEAN ambassadors in Jakarta and it was her with like still a whole row of men and it's still to think that we're still at that stage why don't we have a flood of women appointed to these positions and the reason is always oh well they don't have enough experience but what man has experience when he gets (laughs) they tend to fake it till they make it and we sort of have to keep making it and hope that we get it (laughs) I like that fake it till you make it so I did Men can do it, women can do it too. And really, I feel like there's such a, I mean, we don't all see each other much across this region, but at the same time, there's like a connection and a camaraderie across this region amongst women who really see each other as potential and connect one another into things. But maybe we need to be more intentional about that. Maybe the opportunity for us to, to really be raising the bar of what women are capable of of doing um, across this region it, it needs to be more spotlighted we need to look at that more closely but but yeah there's a lot of work to do I think always but fundamentally if we are allowed to talk about the grown-up substantial issues rather than just being allowed to talk about what it feels like to be a woman then we'll actually get to be able to <laughs> exercise our our uniqueness and what we bring to the not to the table I'm also tired of talking about women's participation at the table frankly it's like that table was set by men and we're allowed to sit in the corner of it no I think it's time for us to not even build a table women don't tend to have to sit at the table we want to build the homes exactly and let loose a whole different energy into conflict systems that will will really transform them and as as you've been saying radicalize them radicalize them in the direction of lasting genuine peace compassion 
real transformation. So, yeah. And uh, in the consultations that we have been having with the civil society organizations uh, in ASEAN, one recommendation keeps coming up. I mean, you know that uh, there are only two countries that have national action plans, and that's the Philippines and Indonesia. The Philippines has integrated civil society participation in the plan itself. Indonesia, which actually does collaborate and listen to their NGOs, does not have that participation of civil society embedded in their plan. And all of these civil society organizations, including those from Myanmar that we talked to, are saying we have to find a way to include that phrase, participation of civil society in the regional plan of action. Do you think there's any appetite for that in uh, among the leaders, especially Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Southern Thailand, and, uh, and the others? I think we have to make an appetite for it. I think, I mean, one of the reasons you've been able to do that in the Philippines is you have such a deep culture of civil society engagement and civil society has really been uncompromising about showing up for everything. I remember Chairman Iqbal always saying um, in the in the Philippines MILF talks that it was civil society that kept driving the process. As you could think that people were off in Kuala Lumpur negotiating, but he would be terrified when he'd get back to have to answer everybody's questions. You know? And that before he left, people were like, you know, loading on all the issues he was supposed to deal with this time. But he said also in those moments where where things started to fall apart, it would be civil society who'd pick up the whole thing again and say, wait a minute, back on track, this is where we need to be. So I think what we want to do is learn from that experience, but also for civil society ourselves to show government that how useful we are. Actually, we have so much to offer them. And even China will call us and say, you know what's happening on the ground through our academic think tanks, please brief us, tell us what's happening because they don't have an active civil society. So they actually miss that thing that the other countries have. And so in a way we need to sell that to them. It's also interesting to me that the UN has frameworks that talk about UN civil society partnerships, but even they are a little bit nervous about partnering with civil society on certain things. So in a way it's a bit of a how do we bring this closer together is how do we convince government about the value added of you know, analysis from civil society, involvement, the richness of experience, facilitation capacity. We have so much that we can share. We also have to get better at packaging ourselves to government and understanding the limitations they have and working out creative ways to work with them. But we just have to normalise that civil society is not a dirty word. Civil society is not threatening. This is actually a huge resource that we can tap into that would actually strengthen government, strengthen regional organizations and so on. So that we're partners, not threats, not competitors. Right. Exactly. Wow, Emma, this has been a, a terrific conversation. When are you coming back to Manila? <laughs> a few people are it must be that the flights are opening up and you're feeling more open there because many people are asked that and I'm so I think in July, but I'm not going to announce that on your podcast. <laughs> 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 then I'll be held to it. People will say, you said in July. So I'm hoping and aspiring to that. I think we really have to, in the Philippines, pay attention to the Bangsamoro process very carefully. I think that it's easy after a peace agreement to have all the 
euphoria of that. But then so many years on the implementation continues and we really need to keep focusing on that. I'm still in the international contact group actually for my sins and we are still paying attention. And I think often people don't, aren't aware that the international mechanisms around that process still exist, are still active, are still following the process, are still listening to people on the ground. I know the the international monitoring team is there this week actually doing their round of interviews and, and listening to people. So, yeah, I think we really have to, to scale up. And, of course, we continue to be concerned about the situation of the CPP-NDF process and the lack of progress that's been made there in the last year. So we also know that where you are is a unique moment again in history that we find you're finding yourselves with presidential candidates that people are unsure about, but we always have to look for the opportunity where we can try to leverage and use what we have to um, to keep people buoyant and excited and motivated, but also to deliver real substantive change. And I believe full-heartedly that the comprehensive agreement on the Bangsamoro does that for Filipinos as well as for Moros. And I think we have to really like drill down on making sure that that's implemented in the years ahead. So... You're absolutely so right. Vaccine, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the euphoria is dissipating. So you're right. We have to hunker down and we have to take a look at what we have to see how do we protect what we have right now and move on with the implementation of the peace agreement, especially with this new administration. So I'm looking forward to seeing you sometime in the near future, not saying exactly when. Not on the screen, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but before we do that, Grandma Emma, do you have uh, <laughs> any words of uh, encouragement to potential young peace builders who are listening to us? Because, by the way, I think about 10% of our listeners are young. They're under the age of 18. So do please speak to them, Grandma, so we have more support. <laughs> well, above all, I think please lead us because I think that many of us have worked hard and long and, and Amina, full kudos to you. You've given your life for this work. I think young people now, you you live now. I mean, this time in history is so different. It's internet connected. It, it's not boxed into sort of sectors and so on and so forth. And you you see yourselves as part of the world. And so that gives you a head start in this kind of work. So I would say lean into that, lead on, gather all the wisdom you can, ask critical questions, listen to leaders who are around you, but then make your own decisions and, and go forward. And I think the challenge to all of us is how do we create space for them and step back and let them fly and trust them to, to lead us forward? Because um, I'm not sure that we have had the best answers and that we really know what we're doing but we've given our all and I think it's really a space and a time for them I am only 50 so I'm not going away anywhere but <laughs> I'm thinking that I can use that energy and, and that inspiration from young people and where they want to take us next to to be able to um I don't know what is it get to the finish line or, or continue the journey or whatever it is that we're doing together but but yeah young people are truly our hope and yeah I think that the hardest thing right now is to believe that other world, other possibilities are really able to be grounded and, and become reality. But I, I see that just as authoritarianism and militarism and, and patriarchal systems feel like they're on the rise at the same time, 
more feminist connected compassionate relationships of men and women are also are also on the rise so i think this is a real yin and yang time of us trying to sort out what kind of world do we want to live in thank you so much emma my dear listeners i have never been as encouraged as i am right now listening to how our grandma emma leslie who doesn't look like a grandma talks about the inspiration that she gets from young people and i do concur our young people have to lead us i mean i'm much 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 more senior citizen than emma so i'm in the final launching uh, phase of my life so i do encourage you look far from that i mean no, this is called photoshopping or whatever <laughs> but i but i do agree we do hope that our young people do pick up the cudgels from Myanmar, Southern Thailand, Mindanao, and shape the world the way you see it. If the young people of Myanmar are coming together to say, this doesn't work, we're going to find another way that works, and never mind that you say you're the junta and you're in control, I can just imagine what a collective of ASEAN youth could do. For this region, which would you believe controls 25% of world trade? We are not an insignificant region with a very young population. So young leaders, listen to Grandma Emma Leslie and do please lead us. Having said that, this is Amina Rasul from the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying thanks for listening. And see you next week. Thanks, Emma. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.